Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome back to Evening Dhamma. Uh, first of all, my broadcast schedule has changed and I didn't um, announce the change in advance, so kind of apologies for for that. But, you know, it's good to shake things up once in a while. And, well, apologies, though, because I'm sure people were making time to come and listen. But uh, also our meditators, uh, we had meditators leave and cancel and so on. So there were no meditators for a day, I think. So I didn't have an audience. Uh, so it seemed like a good time to switch. So my schedule now um, is going to be Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday for giving talks. Uh, it's not that I have a problem giving a talk every day, not really, but um, I think it's a lot. It's um, it's a lot for people to process, and I have, a, I have the feeling that it's better to give less and let people digest it that's the idea seems like I'm just accumulating talks on YouTube that well probably not a lot of people are going to end up watching it's just too much so we do a little bit less and people will have more time to digest that's the idea well that end I'm going to have to um I'm going back to university to take a few language courses. So Wednesday or Tuesday I won't be I won't be available in the evening anyway, so it's a good time to good reason to change my schedule. Monday, Wednesday, Saturday for now. Friday night of course we have our study group and we'll be f switching to the Abhidhamma we'll be studying Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of and commentary on the Abhidhamma Sangha which hopefully will be interesting and enlightening for people so tonight we're looking at uh, what I think will be the final section of the Satipatthana Sutta I guess we'll have little more to say after this, but we're not going to get into the Four Noble Truths. The, the last two sections are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Or no, the last section is the Four Noble Truths, which includes the Eightfold Noble Path, but we've already just recently gone over them. So I'll talk a little bit about how they fit into the Satipatthana Sutta and, and then the conclusion of the Sutta. We'll do it together on Monday, hopefully. But tonight we have the Bojanga. And so by this time you should hopefully see a little bit of a progression in the Dhamma category. So in regards to Dhammas, we're seeing how this is really a, uh, a description of the path of progression. So we start with the hindrances, which are really at the bottom. They're the first thing that has to go, first thing you have to deal with. And when these hindrances are still there, you're 
practice is still floundering. So once you get rid of them, then you can start to not get rid of them. Once you weaken them, anyway, you can start to look at the senses and the aggregates. Um, and then, so the bojangas fit in be, fit in in it for an advanced practice. These are what one should start to experience as a result of the practice. So for people who are looking for um, results, uh, looking for a sign that the practice is working, well this is a sign that the practice is working. If these are increasing, your practice is improving, and once these are perfect, that's what, that's um, the, the path, that's what, that lead, what leads one to that's what leads the path to arise. So once these seven factors are fully mature, then there will be the not the arising, but one will will yeah, I guess the arising of the path. One will enter into nibbana. So the bojangas, bojanga, anga is anga means member. Anguli is a finger, so it's one of the members of your hand. Anga just means a member of something, a member of a community or a member of a group of things, a member of a set. Uh, bojha. Bojha comes from the root bujha, which is in regards to awakening. Bujhati means one awakes, awakens can be spiritual or not spiritual and we talk about a person who's asleep and in the morning then they wake up bujhati he or she wakes buj turns to bod bod buj turns to boj and bojha bojha it also turns to buddha so I have to. I'm not sure how the grammar works that it turns to bodhya, but anyway, it's it comes from bodhi, from from this idea of enlightenment or awakening. Bodhya means means enlightenment, right? So bodhya is a different construction because it's the state of enlightenment. Buddha is with the past participle ta, which. Which anyway, anyway, you don't need to worry about the grammar. But it reg in regards to enlightenment, bojanga, the factors of enlightenment. So we're really talking about those things, those qualities that are essential for uh, enlightenment. Now it's important to note that obsessing over results is is problematic, and it's a sure way to. Uh, get in your own way of of realizing these factors, and uh, second that you 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 don't really cause them to arise at all. I mean, a big problem people have with with results is how do you make them how do you make them arise, right? How do you you want wisdom? How do you turn it on? You want calm and peace. Where's the switch? Where's the dial to turn it up? What do I do, right? How do I create these things? And you don't, is the answer. 
they're a sign that your practice is going well. Uh, they're a sign that your practice is progressing. But they'll only come if you're being mindful, if you're actually practicing mindfulness meditation. Just like vipassana insight, you don't actually practice vipassana. It's what comes from the practice. So the qualities, another way of looking at these, these are the qualities which uh, are required to give rise to vipassana, or give rise to wisdom. The first one is, of course, sati, or what we translate as mindfulness. And so there shouldn't be much need to explain this one, but um, well, we'll talk a little bit more about the importance of sati, and how this set really highlights it. But it's the first, so obviously the first, it's what sort of the key that you turn that uh, leads to the rest of them. And there is some, so there is some work you can do in regards to these. Of course, first with mindfulness, it's the one that uh, we can work to cultivate. Uh, number two is Dhammavichaya. Dhammavichaya is probably the most difficult to understand. Um, you know, what is it actually referring to? Because it's it's unique. It's not something that you read about elsewhere very much. And sorry, just get back to the commentary here. Yeah, and and it's um, it's not one that's explained not very well. But here's what the commentary says that I think gives a good uh, explanation of what it is. It's uh, So there are good things and there are bad things. Karmically good, karmically bad. Right and wrong counterparts of bright and dark things. And an abundance of right reflection on them is the reason conducive to the arising of the non-arisen enlightenment factor of the investigation of mental objects. Investigation of Dhamma, not mental objects. Again, using this problematic translation. So the investigation of Dhammas means the observation and the, the sort of the results of being mindful. You know? And once you're mindful, you start to see right from wrong, basically is all it's saying. So enlightenment comes from this discerning, this uh, observing, and judging, really, sort of a natural judgment. And we talk about non being non-judgmental, but really mindfulness is a lot about being judgmental. It's just not not. Um, not based on, on likes or dislikes. It's based on observation and wisdom. Based on seeing things as they are. Hey, this leads to my detriment. Hey, this leads to my benefit. Or in other words, this, um, though I want to be happy, this leads me to be unhappy. Though I don't want to suffer, this leads me to suffer. So, to get really f philosophical, they're, they're um, contradictory. They're internally contradictory uh, they, conf they conflict with themselves so our, we do this thinking it will make us happy it doesn't make us happy well that makes it wrong I think intrinsically 
because it's not doing what it's what, what it's expected to do. And so, as you naturally see this through being mindful, this is what uh, well, this is what gives rise to wisdom. So this this investigative state, this state of of uh, clarity and discernment that arises from being mindful. And again, this is not something that you have to evoke. It's something that you should see arising. As you're practicing the four satipatthana, where your mindfulness, you should see mindfulness arising. And you should start to see uh, this discernment arising, or this investigating. So you'll start to see wisdom arise because you're, you're investigating. You're looking at things. You're understanding them. Uh, and so the if these aren't arising well then you've got a problem and you have to you have to ask yourself why aren't they arising what am i doing that is preventing them from arise from arising and uh, it, you know it's usually to do with the five hindrances if you have especially doubt or if you have desire or aversion if you're lazy if you're distracted you know, if you're not actually focused on the experience, then no, these things won't arise. But if you're focused, you start to uh, ob observe how certain states are productive and certain states are obstructive or problematic. Dhammavicca is this state of mind that is able to see what is good and what is bad. Uh, next, virya. So, as you cultivate mindfulness and you start to see things as they are, through successful practice, there will arise an amount, uh, increasing amount of energy. You know, in the beginning, you're struggling, but you'll start to see you get energetic as you practice. You start to be impressed by how you you have an increase in energy. You're able to walk and sit for longer periods of meditation your mind is better able to leap out to the object and be aware of the object rather than just reciting mantras and letting your mind wander you have the energy your mind is leaping out is rising to the challenge as you practice this should increase you should see that this is increasing through the practice and number four we have is piti Piti is, <coughs> is uh, again, one of these things, I'm not quite sure how it's so mistranslated, but it's often translated as uh, joy or bliss. And I don't really get that because it's definitely, um, it's not Vedana. And the way it's described by the commentaries, it's not really to do, it's not really an emotion. Not in that sense. Piti is um, it's a state of, of rapture, really. I mean, as I understand, the Christians use the word rapture to mean something fairly specific. But when you're enraptured by something, it's this um, interest or... It's not exactly because that's chanda, but it's this excitement. Or it's uh, a, it's like when you get in a groove... It's the quality of a habit. Piti is when you get caught up 
by something. So, so in in a medit for a meditator, we often describe like when a meditator is rocking back and forth, that's piti, and that can get in the way of your practice. That's a sort of piti that can be not problematic in and of itself, but because you're caught up in it, right, or you get attached to it. But uh, piti is anything the state of getting in a groove, so you get caught up. And in a good way, as a factor of enlightenment, it means getting in the groove of mindfulness. You'll find it becomes smooth. You know, mindfulness becomes easier. As you practice in the beginning, of course, it's a struggle again, struggle to be mindful. Piti is this getting in, getting in your groove, getting in the groove, um, getting caught up in the practice. So it starts to come naturally. You're able to be mindful in ways that you never thought possible. You, you become skilled, so it becomes habitual. And that's what bhiti refers to, as far as I understand. Of course, it seems there are other understandings. Uh, number five is pasadi. Pasadi refers to tranquility. And this is one that meditators expect most, I think, in the beginning. We begin to practice, and the meditator will be looking for it, be um, waiting for it to come, uh, and eventually wondering why it hasn't come yet. And but if they stick with it, eventually, actually, being reassured by the fact that it does arise, there will arise a tranquility of mind, and become less distracted, more focused, and less. Um, less diverse in one's uh, experiences so there's there's less diffusion diffusion meaning fewer thoughts about the past and the future and random things as the mind becomes organized and calms down you should see this through the practice and again this is with all of these they're necessary without some of these without any of these it's very difficult to see clearly it's not really possible to see clearly you need all of these your mind needs to be tranquil in order to see truly see clearly so that's what we're aiming for again if your mind is not tranquil you have to look at those things that are distracting you and by being mindful of them you naturally let them work themselves out it's a natural process basadi is isn't something that you can force but when you're tranquil when you when you become calm well, then number six arises, which is concentration, samadhi. As you become, well, when, once you're calmed down, your mind is again able to focus. It's able to see things clearly. So, you, you, so when you see things, in the beginning, your, your mindfulness is weak. So you note something, but you're easily distracted or it's not a firm mindfulness. Concentration is very firm. Concentration is what keeps you... Uh, and strengthens your awareness on the object so to the exclusion of everything else when you're able to focus on one thing even just for a moment but there's a strength there there's a clarity there's a completeness where nothing else is distracting you in the Abhidhamma it would be a, just a strong state of mind there are weak states of awareness and strong states of awareness in the Abhidhamma 
be a strong one with concentration and the ability to uh, well not the ability but the state of being focused on the object so again with fewer distractions um, your mind as it gets in a rhythm samadhi is that factor that keeps you with the object of your attention you're not caught off guard by anything uh, and number seven is uh, upeka upeka is really the defining factor and again it's important to differentiate between upeka means equanimity so we're differentiating between a forced state of equanimity where you you repress your um, you repress your judgments, your partialities, and the natural state of equanimity that comes from seeing things clearly. When you get to that point where you're able to see all experiences, everything that you see and hear and smell and taste and feel and think, when it no longer triggers a reaction through through vipassana insight, which um, allows you to or reminds you or, or, or brings you to see that uh, all experiences arise and cease then there's an equanimity that arises along with that because this it's hard to understand it because this is new terminology and new ideas but this is really the way it goes once you understand that everything arises and ceases momentarily any attachment or desire or aversion you might have had towards those objects disappears. It doesn't have a foothold because they're just not worth it. They arise and they cease moment after moment. Any one that you hold on to, what would be the point? What would be the benefit? It would just cause stress and suffering because the, the thing would be gone the next moment. And you start to see how how little our, our emotions have to do with actual experiences. We're left in the lurch, reacting to something that's long gone. When you get to that point, that's really the pinnacle of, of insight. That's, that, that's when the bojangas have really come together. Not through forcing equanimity, but through insight. And when you start to see that you're more equanimous, it's a sign that you're progressing. When you get to the point that you're totally equanimous, that you just see things as they are, it is kind of a suppression because if you stop practicing, it'll all come back. But at that, at, in, during that time, you really are ready to see things as they are. And uh, when you reach that pinnacle, and you do see things as they are, that's when the real change comes about. I mean the experience of Nibbana is is evoked and with that then there's a, a true change there's no need to suppress the defilements and they'll be gone I mean not completely piece by piece through seeing Nibbana again and again to realizing cessation of suffering uh, there will be a, a gradual cutting off of defilements permanently for good So that's the seven bojangas. Um, the only other thing to talk about is is how they are balanced, and how the Buddha does talk about cultivating them, 
but I, again, I caution in regards to the cult, the idea of cultivating. I think it's important to to note um, which which ones are are lacking, and or or what uh, in what aspects is your meditation practice lacking or or um, weak. So the Buddha differentiates between one who is energetic and one who is is uh, focused. So if you're too focused, or or if you don't have enough energy, you'll be you'll get tired and you'll be lazy and your mind will be unwieldy. And at that time, at the time when you're drowsy or tired or lazy and so on, then you should cultivate. He says, uh, the first. After mindfulness, the first three after mindfulness. So, putting mindfulness aside, we have six, which the first three are are again, uh, dhamma vichaya, investigation of dhammas, um, energy, and rapture. So these states have to be increased if you're if you're lazy, and. Uh, so the idea of, of actually cultivating them, I, I mean, I think it has much more to do with um, using mindfulness to to balance. But um, but that, that that being said, it, no, there's there there is room, practically speaking, you know, if you want to spend some time reflecting, you know, step back and Dhammavicca, you, you could understand. In some way, how you reflect on on uh, right and wrong, but again, caution in this regard because it's no longer me really meditation. Um, in terms of the meditation, it, besides just cultivating mindfulness, I think it's a little bit more about being aware of what you're of the imbalance and virya, being aware that you have a lack of virya. And so being mindful of that if you're tired, saying to yourself, tired, tired. And and I think just knowing knowing that you're out of balance, that you're, you know, okay, I'm I'm drowsy or lazy. Uh, and and saying to yourself, Okay, I need more Dhammavichaya, more Viriya. I need more investigation of Dhammas, more effort and more um Rapture, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, that sort of sort of awareness, acknowledgement, is going to adjust your practice for you. If you keep that in mind, and again, it, with with all the learning about the dhammas, it's about keeping these things in mind and uh, keeping us on track, rather than uh, than actively seeking them out. So when you when you realize, okay, yes, I'm, I'm I need more of these things, and your mind naturally inclines, and you'll be more alert and aware of uh, of how of the imbalances. And so on the other side, if you're distracted, you know that you have to cultivate the you have to cultivate the last three, which are uh, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So you can see how. Um, you're lacking in these because your mind is distracted. So, so you're just reflecting on them, and uh, or reflecting on this 
fact and reminding yourself okay i need uh, in it, without because i don't have these it's a sign that i'm not really being mindful is really what it's all about you know, there's not much more you need to do than be mindful but knowing about these things studying the dhamma and keeping it in mind is helpful for allowing you to get a sense of what it means to be truly mindful all of these things are indicators of what we really mean by being mindful I think so as long as we're practicing mindfulness all f seven of these should be uh, should become balanced naturally you shouldn't have to artificially cultivate them but uh, it's good to know and it's good to be aware of imbalances the Buddha said mindfulness is what is always useful the other three the other six two sets of three um, you have to balance them you have sometimes they can be out of whack if one is too much but with mindfulness it can never be too much so there you go there's the seven bojangas really the seven uh, final qualities that we need to cultivate when we get them then we're at the we're at the peak and we're ready to become enlightened have a look and see I think there are a whole bunch of questions waiting thirteen questions This is going to be a thing now. If I do fewer talks, I'll have a lot more questions each time. It's okay. Questions are good. I hear in teachings things like the brain doesn't exist, right? That physical objects don't exist. There's only our seeing. Our experience through the senses is the only reality. Nothing else actually exists. I mean, you're you're quoting the word. You're putting quotes around the word "exist," and and I think with good reason because what does it mean to say something exists? Uh, so we're using a specific definition of "exists" here, uh, meaning that which is experienced. So it's important, to di and it's an important distinction. Uh, it's important definition because if you don't experience it uh, psychologically it has a different quality than if you do experience it and and uh, you know effectively it has a different practically speaking it has a different quality to it so if we talk about the brain um, our experience of the brain or the brain's um, work is is all abstract it's useful and practically speaking good to talk you know in a worldly sense talking about the brain is 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 important but psychologically and and experientially it's still just a concept it's it's not something we experience whereas seeing you know, this is what Descartes got on about you know he said when you when you experience experience is something that you can't deny so when I see something yes what I see 
is up up in the air I mean up for debate I don't know if I'm really seeing what I'm seeing if you look at the brain I don't know if it's really a brain or if it's a you know a vision a mirage an illusion I can't be sure of that and and the fact that I can't be sure of it is a sign that it's not um, I'm not you know it's not it's a different kind of real but seeing the experience of seeing is real and you know effectively the difference is that uh, f from our point of view something like a brain is an entity it's stable it's lasting it's controllable even but seeing is not controllable seeing is not lasting you see the, the this is really the the important difference we're trying to to make you know the, the experiences are impermanent unsatisfying uncontrollable and they're always going to be that way um, you, you can't you can't change or, or control experience concepts we can we can work with you know you can change the brain you can control entities I mean you think you can and then you suffer when you can't because of the underlying realities of experience being impermanent, unsatisfying, uncontrollable. Two different levels of reality. And it, it's not just philosophical, it's practical, it's very important. I mean, it's not important to understand these intellectually, but you know, it helps when you understand them intellectually so you don't have so much doubt about what is real and about why we're practicing and about the three characteristics and so on because uh, you know when you practice there's no question that you're not experiencing things like a brain or, or a person you're only experiencing seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking and they're com they're a completely different quality they arise and they cease and 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 they underpin everything I mean they're the building blocks of, of everything you can't have a brain without experience. The, the, the concept that something exists outside of experience is just that. Even if you have experiments that can show, okay, um, you know, the brain was there before, I look, it's still there. I stop looking, oh, it's still there, right? Um, you can say, well, that means it exists independent of my seeing because it's still there and you see things, you, you plant a tree in the forest, you come back later, it's fallen over, and you say, well, that tree was there, and it grew up, and it fell over. Even though I wasn't there to hear it fall, it did fall, independent. All of that is going on in your mind. And you might argue with me and say, but, you know, the evidence is overwhelming. It's, it's a different kind of evidence. It's not real. I could make, a, I could make up an argument, well, that's just... Um, your mind creating this reality. I, mean, I don't know if that's the case, and it's not really important if it is. You know, your mind, because it expected the tree to fall, when it went back, it was still there. But you know, maybe that's the case. I'm I'm suspicious that it might, in some way, be the case. But it's not really important whether it is or not. Um, the tree falling in the forest is all happening in your mind. All that's real is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, and that's 
an important way of looking at things because it does allow you to let go of I mean it lets you interact and understand reality to the extent that you can eventually let go and be free from suffering you can't do that with concepts because they're subject to the realities of again these building blocks Mahasi Sayadaw said in regards to noting breath never verbally repeat the words rising falling and do not think of rising and falling as words I don't know that he ever said that. I think the Mahasi Sayada never said such a thing. Never verbally repeat. Oh, so verbally out loud, right? Do not think of rising and falling as words. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he said something like that. That is true. But um, it was quite clear. He had, you're supposed to actually say to yourself, not out loud, but in your mind thinking, thinking. The point is not to see them as words in your brain for sure, in your m mind for sure. You should actually speak the mantra in your head as if you're talking to yourselves. Absolutely. I don't think there's any other way of understanding Mahasi Sayadaw's teaching. People have tried, and I've talked about this, they've tried to I don't know, they've tried to talk about eventually I mean there's a big contention about eventually letting go of the mantra but it's clear that that's how it starts I'm just not convinced that you should ever let it go but everyone agrees that in the beginning you, I mean that's how we start I don't how, know how else you could understand it when Mahasi Sayada says a meditator notes to themselves seeing, seeing what is he talking about? If it's not a mantra, what is it? Do you have any advice on dealing with delusion? It's a pattern of behavior in my thinking since my delusion is darkness. If if you, know, you can't deal with delusion, you just have to be mindful. And when you're mindful, there's no delusion. not like greed and anger that you can note it delusion I mean you can note things like worry that's a kind of delusion or doubt that's a kind of delusion but um, you know, the ignorance and most unwholesome states are well, they're, they're there because there's no mindfulness so once you're mindful the delusion will be gone uh, what's advice for delusion? Delusion is advice for delusion is to be more mindful. Okay, I'm not getting through these very quickly, but uh, daily life. Should we break down our movements to detailed small movements? Sure. Yes. Great. Don't be too hard on yourself, but if you can, do what you can. Try and be, um, try and moder have some sort of moderation there. You know, don't stress too hard about every minutia, every minute detail of your life. You know, try and be moderate, noting the big stuff or the not 
the, the, the sort of the stuff medium stuff not too detailed not too coarse a borderline personality disorder which is characterized by unstable sense of self feelings of chronic emptiness mm. can suffering actually be the result of good karma if it brings so this dbt caused intense suffering but it brought me to the path can suffering actually be the result of good karma if it brings you to the path leading to its cessation mm. well the suffering wouldn't be there because of I don't know DBT and I can't comment but um, you know, suffering can come from mindfulness practice so that's a good question but it's not coming from the practice of mindfulness suffering won't come from being mindful uh, but when you're mindful it um, the the attachments that you have make you suffer because you're not reacting to them you're not giving in to them the, uh, you're not getting what you want and so that triggers your you're in a sense um, evoking suffering you're instigating suffering so mindfulness is kind of like a catalyst for the arising of suffering but it's not bad I mean it is bad karma to get angry but when you're mindful it can it can make you very angry in the beginning um, but what it's doing is it's allowing you to see how you get angry at things and when you're mindful you're observing and um, sticking with the things that upset you the things that cause desire the things that cause diver aversion and so you're it's necessary because you're going to watch those things you're, you have to learn about them um, but in the beginning this involves suffering so uh, I yeah I wouldn't worry about it but it, it's important to understand what you're asking it's it's not quite correct that um, what you're doing is is causing suffering it's just putting you in a position um, where suffering will arise. Like suppose we talk about some some similar example in, in life. If you're waiting in line, waiting in line doesn't cause you suffering. But the fact that you don't want to wait in line causes you suffering. I mean, being patient in general causes suffering when you have impatience, when you're not a patient person. Um, doing menial labor you know, it's physically stressful but otherwise uh, it's not a problem except that your mind doesn't like it so it's the disliking of it and the boredom that causes suffering not the actual experience so meditation doesn't cause suffering but the things that come up when you meditate they cause you suffering and that's necessary I mean, that's really all what it's all about we want to see that you want to see what's actually causing you suffering, not the meditation, but those things that it forces you to see. For example, bad past memories, trauma, that kind of thing, cause a lot of suffering, but um, it's not, it's not, you can't fault the practice. Why do we believe, we believe in a self? Why is it so hard to see non-self? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you, it's evolved 
it's evolved from from the idea of entities um, it's evolved from possessiveness desire and so on it comes and it goes it seems like our sense of self changes it waxes and it wanes so it's a process it's something that we go through but uh, where it comes from it comes from many different sources three I guess um, it comes from conceit uh, two I guess it comes from conceit sometimes it comes from desire which is possessiveness it comes from views just the view that there is a self but that is really the belief, right? Why is it so hard to see self? See non-self? Um, because of the way we look at the world. We look at the world that way. We're accustomed to looking at the world from the point of view of, of uh, entities, which is really just a it's a simpler, it's an easier way it's a it's a less str strenuous to, I mean it's a simplification rather than having to be aware of things as being experiences, you can group those experiences into things this is this, this is this practically it's, it takes a lot less energy and it allows us to have more complex lives which is what we've evolved to have where we have many very complicated existence with many different entities involving involved. During sitting, I'm not experiencing any rising or falling movement most of the time, even when I place my hand on my stomach. So I note that as feeling. I only feel a slight pressure, so I note that as feeling. When I come back to the stomach, ultimate reality is feeling, and I alternate between feeling, feeling, and sitting, sitting. I notice my mind likes to control this by trying to feel the rise-fall movement, even when it's not there. I only feeling feel rising-falling when I sit with my back straight. Should I keep trying to feel the rising-falling? I mean, you should note what it is, again, that's preventing you from breathing naturally. There's often stress and tension. You try doing lying, lying on your back. Um, it'll help you see the rising and falling more clearly or again you say with your back straight um, that it shouldn't be necessary but in the beginning that might be helpful again we don't have to be aware of a, of a you don't have to be aware of a gross um, movement it can be subtle but just be aware of a slight expansion and contraction but again, it's not. It's just an example object. You can adapt if necessary. I just don't think it's usually necessary. I think mostly it's our tension, stress, or or you know, mental state that um, prevents us from seeing clearly. This it's a simple movement like the rising and the falling. What is the Heart Sutra? Um, well, I don't teach it. So I'm not going to really comment.
What is the most important thing to notice? Is it intention or action? E.g. bend, bend and bending, bending. When I try to notice both, I have to slow down daily activities. Sometimes even the initial intention is obvious, then the action is further consistent. I don't really understand this. You, you mean intending to bend and then bending? or, or You can note intending. Intending or wanting, we would say, wanting to stand, wanting to stand. Standing, standing, that's useful. But um, you know, probably more important is the actual movement, the actual action. But doesn't, I mean, either one is great. Note whatever arises, physically or mentally. Why do some monks take a vow of silence? I don't know. In Buddhism, there is no soul, so how can rebirth possible? I've given talks on this. Um, again, actually, I think last session I actually answered this. Uh, so we don't believe in rebirth, but um, death, when we talk about death, is just a concept. Reality is experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking, and that's always arising and ceasing. So when you pass away, uh, that doesn't change. How is sensual pleasure and material desire different? I don't know. Are they different? I don't think they're different. Uh, should we eliminate or minimize our expectations from the world? Sure, yes. Expectations are problematic. They're based on mostly aversion, uh, desire, sometimes aversion, sometimes worry, sometimes fear, that kind of thing. So I think that, yes, that's a wise way of looking at things. Vantaso, hatavaka so, vantaso. Vantaso means hopeless. One should be hopeless, meaning one should not hope for anything. Okay, that's all the questions. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good night.